0: So wonderful to be together this morning. Thank you for your presence. for you're visiting with us, we're honored that you're here. And I might say, as I do sometime, you're honored to be here, not because of us, but because it's an honor to be in the presence of God and to have the opportunity to glorify him. Uh, so thank you for your willingness to participate in that and to join together with us in glorifying our Heavenly Father. It is our desire that we have him help us achieve higher heights, to be planted on higher ground as we live in this world, a closer relationship with him, live above the world, and to come closer and closer to heaven every day. As was mentioned already, the lesson this morning is entitled, The Oracles of God and the Language of Ashdod. To some this morning, that title may mean absolutely nothing. To others who have heard me speak about these things before, you're saying, we think we know where you're going with this, Steve. So again, we have a wide variety of folks that might be uh, listening this morning. I realize that. But I do think uh, that the lesson will unfold very plainly and that it will be one that helps us uh, learn to speak in ways that are pleasing to God as we talk about things that are important in this world. Stanford University is one of the most elite educational ed- institutions in America. It's located out in California. It's highly, highly rated and respected uh, by those in the academic world. Last year, uh, it launched uh, an initiative through its IT department that was called the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative. That is ELI for short. Uh, the acronym. So, Ellie was an initiative that was put up on a website by Stanford. Basically, they're trying to get all sorts of harmful language off of their websites and published material and all of that sort of thing. Um, as they explained, this is they said a multi-phase, multi-year project to address harmful language in IT at Stanford. And so as you read what it is that they put out, they have decided that words like brave and American and take a shot at it, hip, hip, hooray, submit, ladies and gentlemen, are all harmful words and phrases that should be eliminated. The word brave, according to the guide, That they put out was deemed harmful because it perpetuated stereotypes of the noble, courageous savage. In other words, Native Americans. The word submit was objectionable because, depending on the context, the term can imply allowing others to have power over you. hip hip array was objectionable because it was used by Nazis when rounding up Jewish citizens during World War II. Ladies and gentlemen was objectionable because it lumps a group of people into gender binary groups which don't include everyone. So that was the reasoning for some of these words. The word American, by the way, was objectionable because there are over 40 countries in the Americas and how dare those citizens of the United States, you know, call ourselves Americans when you've got 40 other countries that are in North and South and Central America. Of course, I'm not sure that any of them have the word America in the name of their country, as in the United States of America. But be that as it may, Americans is supposedly bad. So that's some of the reasoning. Again, this is an elite college, elite elite university. Uh, Some of the brightest minds in America are graduates of there, teach there. Uh, So it's fairly significant that they would put this out. Now, to clarify a little bit, uh, about a month after they put it out, they took it down. <laughs> because there were a lot of people who objected to it from all walks of life, from, you know, every spectrum of the political realm and all of that. So they, they did take this down. But I will say also that not only Stanford, but many other institutions of higher education and corporations are using this very same type of thinking to limit the language that is used in workplaces and in schools and in academic pursuits and in public discourse. Now, that's just a fact. This is just an example of what's going on in the world. It happens not only in academia and the political world, but also among denominations, religious groups. denominations are doing the same thing. uh, Trying to limit language that they believe is harmful in some way. So I read a story just night before last uh, of a um, meeting of leaders of the Church of England, the Episcopalians, these Anglican bishops as they call themselves. The Bishop of York addressed the assembly, and said that what they call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the model prayer usually, or the disciples' prayer, but whatever you want to label it. Uh, The Bishop of York, so-called Bishop of York, said that uh, we need to rethink that because of the word Father being patriarchal, you know, where men rule. And uh, we need to rethink that prayer because he said it's problematic to use the word father. Now, again, there were some in that group that objected to what he was saying. And one in particular said, well, don't we just need to say what the Bible says? I like that. You know, and that's kind of where we're going in the lesson this morning. Let's start with a few principles. The language of God's people matters. In Nehemiah's day, the influence of the world made some of the Israelites incapable of speaking their national language. You remember in Nehemiah's day there were those Israelites who'd come back from captivity, they'd settled in Jerusalem and Judah, but there were pagan people all around them. God had told the Israelites from long ago, don't mingle with the pagan people, don't intermarry with the pagan people. Don't let yourselves become like them or adopt their culture. But all throughout their history, they basically didn't listen to that. And all the way into the days of Nehemiah, a thousand years after Israel was established as a nation, it's still a problem. So in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 23, in those days, Nehemiah says, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. That was a problem, because it showed that the world around, the pagan world around Israel, was affecting and infecting even the children of the Israelites. The fact that the children born from these mixed marriages, as it was, Spoke mixed languages. And that demonstrated. That they were not being raised. To serve the one true God. They were being raised. To speak corrupt language. To live by corrupt morals. And to participate in a corrupt religion. That was the problem. It's still the problem today. Metaphorically at least. God. God is glorified. When we speak His things, His words in His way. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, the contrast to the language of Ashdod is what God wants. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. The oracle is basically the, the mouthpiece of God. When you talk... You need to talk like God talks. Like God would say it. Like God did say it in His Word. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And the end of that verse, as it talks about a couple of other things, but the point of it is that God may be glorified. It doesn't glorify God to say things the way everybody else says them. It glorifies God to say things the way God says them. That's Peter's point. That's my point this morning. Our language must be pure, even to call on the name of the Lord and to unify ourselves in doing that. It's important that all of us learn to speak the language of inspiration, the language that God has given us in His book to talk about holy things, or anything as far as that goes. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9, prophecy about God's blessing His people in the future. He says, then I will restore the peoples, to the peoples a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. Pure language. Language is important. God wants us to use the language, the kind of terminology that He has given us to talk about His things, to talk about His ways. The world pressures us to pervert the oracles of God. Words are not only the way we express things, but think about this, words are the way we think about things. And so changes in our vocabulary actually change our thinking. It's not just that our thinking changes so we use different words we use different words, our thinking will change about those things. The world knows that. For many years, uh, since the 1980s at least, there was this movement that was properly called political correctness. I I can remember, I was telling somebody this this morning, I I can remember working on uh, a graduate degree in the late '80s and early '90s, and being hit with terminology that I could and could not use to talk about issues like multiculturalism, for instance, which was really a big thing back then, and, and political correctness had had fully, uh, you know, come upon the American culture, where there were things that you couldn't say in the workplace, things that people have been saying for years. Not hurt anybody's feelings, everybody understood what they meant, but now all of a sudden, that's not the word to use. You've got to say some other word. What happened in higher education about 40 to 50 years ago is that people who were leading the way, cutting-edge academics, realized what I just told you a minute ago. That if you can change people's vocabulary, you can change the way they think. And that's what that was all about. And that's what it still is all about. You might say, well, that just applies to people, you know, who go on to higher education and get those upper degrees and all that. Yeah, and all of those people become our political leaders, our judges, our, you know, uh, captains of industry. And then that trickles down to everybody. I want you to consider something. The world, as well as false religion, may look like a lamb, but talk like a dragon. Appearing harmless, but speaking poisonous words. There is a picture that's given in one of the visions that John has in, in Revelation chapter 13. There are two beasts that come up. There's a, a beast out of the sea and a beast out of the earth or the land. So the sea beast... Plainly represents the Roman Empire. I'm not going to get into Revelation deeply this morning. But here's the Roman Empire. And here is the land beast that comes up. And the land beast uh, looks like a lamb. Looks, you know, very pleasant. And uh, something that's nice. and We like to pet it. You know, be in the petting zoo. But it talks like a dragon. And the dragon in Revelation is the devil. So it seems harmless. But he's saying things that are vile and corrupting. And in fact, he's saying things that draw people into paganism, to the worship of the beast, the Roman emper- emperors, to the cooperation with the beast and persecuting Christians. And that's not a whole lot different from what we're seeing in the world today. Where these you know innocent academics, seemingly, these people who are just trying to purify our language a little bit and help us be more understanding and careful about what we say, well, that seems really nice. And maybe a little of it is. But at the core, it's as corrupt as it can be. Looks like a lamb. Talks like a dragon. It's teaching us to talk like the dragon. Perverse words. Make no mistake. Perverse words lead to perverse walk. Please think about this with me. The relationship between what we say and how we live. The word perverse, I want to make sure you understand how I'm using that word. Sometimes we use it to refer to sexual deviancy and things like that. And it can be used that way for sure. That's not how I'm using it. The word perverse, according to Oxford Language Dictionary, The word perverse means contrary to the accepted or expected expected standard of practice. So contrary to the accepted standard of practice. The accepted standard of practice for any Bible-believing Christian is the word of God. So anything that tries to change that in a substantial way is perverse. Perverse words are those which do not align themselves with what God has said in Scripture. That's how I'm using the term this morning. In Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 11. Let discretion preserve you. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. To deliver you from the way of evil. From the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of uprightness. To walk in the ways of darkness. You notice the connection there. The man who doesn't have godly wisdom. And he speaks perverse things. And what happens? He walks in the ways of darkness. And the wise man saying, don't be like him. Don't follow those perverse words that lead you in the way of darkness. Proverbs 4 and verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence. Watch the way that you think about things. For out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from, your, from you a deceitful mouth. Things that A mouth that says things that are not accurate. That are not true according to God. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. We need to speak the way God wants us to speak. Or we'll be walking in the way that God does not want us to walk and thinking things that God does not want us to think. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate, Proverbs 8:13. And in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. It is our duty to know what is acceptable, what God wants us to say, how He wants us to say it, how He wants us to express truth, if we're going to be upright, if we're going to be righteous, The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse? What is not according to the law and will of God. So let's think for a few minutes about the oracles of God versus the language of Ashdod and some of the examples that I gave already. Obviously, we could spend years going over all of the words that the world wants us to use contrasting them with words and phrases and thoughts that God wants us to use. I've only picked five this morning so we'll, we'll probably get out in time for y'all to have lunch at least. But I want to look at some words like the word brave. I understand the word brave was used to speak of indigenous American warriors, young men, who were, by the way, exceptional warriors. I don't know how that's an insult. Maybe somebody can explain that to me. But the word brave has been used in a lot of other ways and is a biblical word word in many translations. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13 in the New King James Version in the Good News Bible, other translations as well. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave. Be strong. So bravery has to do with courage. That's the meaning of the word. It is a biblical concept and a biblical word. And we need to be brave. Simple as that. The word brave, however, talking about how some like to use it. (laughs) Interestingly, there are those who use this word a lot who are the same people who are telling us not to use it, by the way. They use it in this context of when somebody comes out in a prideful way and tells everybody that they're proud of their whatever it is, sexual orientation, uh, some other evil thing that they're doing, and they're proud of that, they are so brave. I don't know how many times I've heard that, right? They are so brave. But that's not a biblical use. The word brave does not describe one who is courageous about proudly proclaiming their sinful perversions to others. Brave is one who stands for the faith. Male and female. We talked about this not long ago in a lesson. I don't have to belabor this. I think you know where this is going. Male and female, the oracles of God on gender, is simply that God made male and female. The definition of gender, let me just clarify something here. The definition of gender, according to the Oxford Language Dictionary, is, I quote, the male sex or the female sex, especially when considered with reference to social-cultural differences rather than biological ones, or one of a range of other identities that do not correspond to established ideas of male and female. I want you to notice that the latter part of that definition shows that the very concept of gender has been perverted according to its own definition. It starts out by saying, male and female, and then it says lots of other things besides male and female. And be that as it may, in Matthew chapter 19, and verse 4, Jesus said, He who made them at the beginning, made them male and female. God did that. That's the way we're going to talk about it. God did that. Gender, let me say this clearly so that we'll stop being confused about this if we are. Gender is never assigned by any human being. Gender can only be observed. It's assigned by the God who made male and female. When I say that gender can only be observed, Again, I go to the oracles of God. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2, the mother of Moses conceived and bore a son. Now, how did she know he was a son? She conceived and bore a son, a male child, and when when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. She saw that he... hmm. She just observed it. She didn't assign it. She just observed it. And so, over in the book of Revelation, in chapter 12 and verse 13, there's this vision that John has and there's this woman who's about to give birth to a child. She does give birth to a child. The dragon was going to attack the child and the woman in, the, in context. The dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth and then he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Gave birth to the male child. As you go through the Bible, at least 23 times in the Bible, the Scriptures state that a woman, quote, bore a son. 23 times. A woman bore a son. At least two times, Scripture states that a woman bore a daughter. That's what the woman bore. A son or a daughter. Nothing else. Once it is even stated, in the case of Elizabeth, that she not only bore a son, it says that she conceived a son. When was the son a son? When was he a male child? She conceived a son at conception. That's when God assigns gender. All we do is observe it. That's reality. That's how the Bible wants us to think about it and speak about it. That's the oracles of God. The word submit is a biblical word. In most translations of the Bible, sometimes translated subject, you have the word submission and subjection. Word that's uh, translated submit is also sometimes just translated obey. It's a biblical word requiring us to acknowledge and obey one who has legitimate authority over us. Of course, today it's being redefined by members, even of the Lord's church, but especially of the denominational world, in such a way as to lose the entire force of the word. No longer. Do you put yourself under the power of somebody else? No longer are you subject to their will for you. No longer are you obligated to do what they say to obey them. Because according to the world and a lot of religious people today, that's not what submit means. And yet it is what submit means. And it's clearly revealed throughout Scripture in the context that it's used. And I'm not going to go through the many, many contexts where this word is used. But a sampling. Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 2. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Are we supposed to obey the Lord? Are we under His authority? Do we give Him power over us? Isn't that what we do? To submit to Him? In the same verse says wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. John 4 and verse 7, submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. 1 Peter 2 and verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether to the king, as supreme, or governors who are sent by him. Does human government have authority over us? Are we supposed to obey the laws of the land? That's what submission is. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And then he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. We ought to be willing to do what somebody else is telling us to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Humble ourselves. Even to do what a child might ask us to do. To allow ourselves, you know, if you've like seen the commercial or had the experience where the dad is, you know, wearing a, a silly hat and sitting at a little tiny table having a tea party with his daughter because she told him to, you know what submission to a young person is all about. Submission is something we do willingly. I understand that. But it is giving someone power over us. It is putting ourselves under them. The very meaning of it. And only the language of Ashdod would say otherwise. What about the word pastor and also the word preacher? We're looking at words now that our denominational friends have perverted, if you will. Uh, our brother, Chad Brewer, who is a preacher that Eastside supports, uh, wrote a really good little piece on Facebook this last week. And it was about this very subject. Uh, but he said, preacher and pastors are two different roles in the New Testament church. The modern idea of a pastor being the head leader and preacher of a church is wholly unbiblical. A pastor being the head leader and preacher of a church is wholly unbiblical he said is the entire structure of church organization and function from something designed by God to something made by man and I believe that's entirely right some people you know why do you get up so upset or well I don't get upset but why are you so concerned that you know somebody calls you a pastor Well, it concerns me because it's not biblical. I'm not a pastor. It concerns me because it suggests that they have an idea in their minds that in some way Steve Klein is over this church at Eastside. And I'm here to tell you this morning, in no way is Steve Klein over this church at Eastside. I'm not a pastor. We have pastors here who, according to the language of God, rule over this church. That's the word that's used, rule. They do so with humility. They do so with concern. But let's just go through this quickly. I know many of you are aware of this, but I know some uh, may not be aware. Pastor, the word pastor, is only used once in the New King James Version of the Bible. It's found in Ephesians 4 and verse 11. God Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Notice, evangelists listed differently than pastors, listed separately even than teachers. Now somebody might do the different roles. One person might have different roles, but they are different roles. In Acts chapter 20, I think is the most obvious place to go, and also 1 Peter 5, we'll do both of those. Acts chapter 20. If you look at verse 17, the Apostle Paul calls the elders, It calls them the elders of the church at Ephesus. So the elders of the church at Ephesus come to talk to Paul, and Paul says to them in verse 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Another translation of that is bishops. He's made you overseers to shepherd that's what a pastor does. A pastor is a shepherd. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So in that text you have elders being called overseers or bishops or pastors. That's what a pastor is. He is an elder and overseer of the flock. There's never just one of them in a congregation. There's always more than one. Always a plurality of them in a congregation. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter there says, he addresses, quote, the elders who are among you, I exhort you who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd, that's to be a pastor, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, or bishops, depending on your translation, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So that's what Pastors are. They are bishops, overseers, or elders. The New Testament uses all of those terms interchangeably for pastor. We have qualifications that these men have to meet, laid out very clearly by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. In contrast to that, a preacher is someone who is a public proclaimer of the gospel. I say that, although sometimes he could also be a private proclaimer of the gospel. The word, Greek word is Caruso, and it literally means a herald. It would be the word that was used for the town crier, okay? Somebody who goes around publicly proclaiming the words of the king. It's used in passages like Romans 10 and verse 14. "How shall they hear without a preacher? Another word used synonymously in Scripture is evangelist. That's just one who is evangelizing. The word evangelist comes from the word gospel. Gospelizing. Somebody who's sharing the gospel. And so in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, we noticed already that Paul says God gave some to be evangelists. They're also called ministers. Now the word minister just means servant, so it can be applied to a lot of people actually. There are a lot of ministers here. But when it comes to a preacher, a preacher is specifically a minister of the gospel. He is serving the gospel to others. So you can see in a passage like 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2, Paul speaks of Timothy as our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, he calls Timothy... An evangelist. He says, do the work of an evangelist. So you have Timothy being a preacher, an evangelist, and a minister. That was his work. Again, you say, well, what's the big big deal? Well, the, the big deal is, let's use the language of God. Let's call things that God has for us by the names He's given us to use. And not conflate confuse what a pastor is with what a preacher is. Now, I, again, I know the entire, not just in America, the entire denominational world, all over the world, about that. And I, there are some Christians that are confused about it, and I understand why. There's virtually nobody in the world, in the religious world, that uses these terms correctly. And... It's not hard to see. It's important to see what the difference is. As we said, a preacher is a proclaimer of God's word, also referred to as a minister or evangelist. So quickly, there's one other word I want to look at before we get to our conclusion. It's the word fellowship. Fellowship is a word the Bible uses many, many, many times. Sometimes the Greek word for it is not even translated fellowship. It might be translated sharing or participating, communing, something like that. So you don't realize actually how many times this word is found in the Greek text of Scripture. But fellowship in Scripture, when it's used relative to Christians is or the church, is always used in relation to spiritual endeavors. The word fellowship refers to a partnership or a joint participation Sharing together in an activity, a relationship, or some endeavor. It's always used of Christians to talk about spiritual things and never carnal ones. Now, the denominational world has so perverted this word, now I again use the word perverted, the denominational world has so perverted this word that we can hardly hear it without thinking of potluck dinners, social get-togethers, or playing sports together. That's the, wor- the way the world has defined fellowship. That is the language of Ashdod. Fellowship in scripture is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. We're called to share in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? There's no joint participation, no sharing together, no common endeavor between righteousness and lawlessness. The two are opposites. That's how fellowship is used there. 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Us with Him and and, and the rest of us. What's that fellowship? Walking in the light. Joint participation. Endeavoring to be in the light together. That's what that fellowship is. And so we can look at many, many other usages of the word fellowship relative to churches and Christians in the New Testament and they're all that way. And yet we never, virtually, even among the Lord's people, And I will say it was used this morning in the proper way in the prayer. The word fellowship. I appreciate that. But many times... Pure Pure language from the oracles of God. We're to use sound speech that cannot be condemned. The language of Ashdod my friends, threatened the identity of Israel. This was not a, long, uh, a language that God's people should have been speaking. The language we use to describe biblical concepts reflects our own understanding of those concepts and our spiritual maturity. It reflects our careful attention to Scripture and to the doctrine of Christ. If our language is incorrect, Our thinking process is probably also incorrect, but will also impact others, including our children. Children gather their concepts about spiritual things from their parents. If we're using language wrong, if our concepts are wrong, theirs will be too. So we must use sound speech that cannot be condemned. Our obligation. Let me be clear about this: is to speak kindly, courteously, and truthfully. I don't want to get ugly about with anybody. I'm not going to beat anybody over the head because you know, well, you use the word fellowship wrong, and so I'm on the outs with you now. That's not the approach. The approach is let's understand what the scriptures say. Let's study God's Word. And as is said in Colossians 4 and verse 6, let our speech be always with grace. As is said in Ephesians 4, let's speak the truth, but in love. Speak the truth in love. There are three keys to this. Just quickly and the lesson will be yours. First of all, if we're going to speak as the oracles of God and not use the language of Ashdod, we're going to have to meditate. On scripture. Not only read it. But think about it. What has God said? How did he say that? When I talk about this. I need to say it like he said it. That's meditation. Psalm 119 verse 23. Princes also sit and speak against me. But your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. When God's testimonies and statutes and way of saying things is what we delight in, it will inform our minds and change our words. So let's speak of things in accordance with Scripture. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 171. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue Shall speak of your word for all your commandments of righteousness. See, I get it in my head, and then it comes out my mouth. Lastly, let me say just this Is this difficult? Is it difficult to think, to change our thought processes and language? It is. I have struggled with many, many words and thoughts in my life that came from Adam. And they are hard to get out once they get in. But I believe it's worth the effort. I believe it's what God would want of us. And this last point might might be the most important of all. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That has to be our prayer. That has to be our prayer. Thank you so much for your good attention this morning. We've not talked about what a person needs to do if they're outside of Christ. If you're outside of Christ this morning and you know what you need to do, we want you to do it. The world might say, well, just pray a prayer or accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. The Apostle Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, Why are you waiting? Rise and be baptized. And wash away your sins. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.